I don't know if you know this, but if you are a born-again child of God who's living with half your heart devoted to God, but half or part of your heart pursuing the things of this world, I want you to know, and I mean this in, in the best way possible, and so does our Heavenly Father, I want you to know that God will stop at nothing to bring you back to Him. He'll bring whatever it takes into your life to bring you back fully to Him. I've experienced this in my own life in a number of ways. I shared with you briefly last week how when I was in the IT world for 20 years or so, during much of that, God had already convicted me that I needed to be here doing this. And my father did this. I grew up as a missionary kid, and I saw the difficulties of that. I saw how hard that was, uh, how lonely it was so often, not just for the pastor, but his wife, for their children. Um, it was a difficult road, and I just I knew that God was calling me to it. But I just said, no, I can't. I can't do that. It's, and I, I try to um, maybe comfort myself by saying that it wasn't active rebellion against God, but it, it was. And I was so fearful and so, you know, working, growing the business, and that was my, that was my aim. And, and so I would barter with God and, and I would say, okay, look, I'm not going to go full in, but I'll help my wife teach a Sunday school class. And um, men, how many of you know that God, God's voice sounds a lot like your wife's voice? And, you know, Sandy's the one who really got me started in that direction. She, she forced me in the, we were in a very large church where her, her parents helped start 40 or 50 years ago, and we got married there, and, and uh, she forced me, my wife forced me to teach a children's Sunday school class against my will. And she said, I signed us up to do this. I said, what? What? We talk about these things. And um, so I went sort of kicking and screaming, but, you know, I, I did that. And I said, okay, Lord, I'm serving you. So could you ease off on the conviction about all the other stuff? But the further I ran, the louder the calls got. Until I remember the day, and I, I'm sure Sandy remembers it as well, uh, I was asked to come and speak at a national conference for hospital security, and uh, some genius planned this conference in Worcester, Massachusetts in February. I'll let you just think about that for a minute. The snow was about that deep, and, uh, but it was packed, and so we got up, we did the presentation, and I mean, it was, it was a home run. We knocked it out of the park, and there were hospitals lined up to purchase our product and to come on board with us, and it's the best day we'd ever had. And I remember packing up my things and getting on the elevator in the hotel and going up to my room and sitting on the edge of the bed and crying. I should have been out painting the town red. I should have been out celebrating. But I realized in that moment that everything I had been working for and imagining had just happened and it was empty. And I thought, boy... If I've worked this hard to get to this point, and this is as good as it feels, I don't want to do this. And that was God's way of really grabbing my attention. And uh, I remember picking up the phone and calling Sandy and saying, 
God's doing something. Things are going to be different when I get back. And there were, I could share with you for hours on things that God did in our lives following that and how some of them were extremely difficult and extremely painful. Why? Because no matter how I want to talk my way out of it, I was, I was a double-sided Christian. I loved the Lord. I wanted to live for Him. But I hadn't surrendered my whole heart. Part of my heart was still pursuing other things. By the way, nothing wrong with any of those things, but when God has a call on you, if you're pursuing anything else, you're in sin. God used some very hard lessons in my life and in our lives to bring us to the point He wanted me to be. And so I want to begin this morning by saying, as we go through these verses in 1 Kings chapter 18, I want you to keep that in mind. What God is doing here is he, he sees that His people that He loves have turned their hearts from Him. God is willing to do anything to bring them back. Last Sunday we were in chapter 17 of 1 Kings in our study through the Bible. We saw that Ahab was king over the people. The Bible says that King Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all those who had come before him. He set up places of idol worship, and had God's people, God's people, worshiping idols. And so God sent the prophet Elijah, who just sort of bursts onto the scene there in chapter 17, verse 1. He sent Elijah to Ahab to declare judgment coming on Ahab and on the land in the form of a drought. And Elijah said there's not going to be rain or dew until I say so. And then, after sending Elijah to Ahab to pronounce this judgment, God immediately, in the next verse, sends Elijah out into the middle of nowhere to hide from Ahab while this drought is going on. He tells him to go to a brook, to a little stream. He says, you can get water from the stream, and I will send ravens to feed you morning and evening. And that's exactly what happened. But after a while, we saw the brook dried up, God's provision ended where Elijah was there, and it was a way of God saying, I have an another assignment for you. The next chapter is ready for you. And so God sent Elijah to uh, the town of Zarephath, and he said, you'll find a widow lady there who will provide your needs. And it says Elijah got up and went, as was his pattern. And he came to that town and saw the widow, and she was out gathering some sticks to build a fire to cook her last meal. Elijah said to her, bring me some water and some bread. And she said, sir, as the Lord lives, um, it's just my son and I, and I'm gathering this wood to build a fire to cook our last meal, and then we're going to die. And uh, Elijah said to her, first make me a meal. Bring it to me first. And then, God will provide everything you need going forward. Wow, there's a, I didn't even focus much on that last week, but that's such a powerful lesson. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. And the widow did that. She believed by faith, and it's exactly what she did. She gave her last meal to this prophet. The Bible says that her, her flour and her oil did not run out day after day after day. God provided for her. And then um, 
the end of that chapter, we see suddenly that the widow's son dies, becomes sick and dies. And she turns on the prophet and blames him for bringing this trouble into her life. And Elijah takes the boy and stretches him out on the bed upstairs and prays over him, lays over him and prays and cries out to God, God, have mercy, please bring life back to this boy. And God did. God raised her son from the dead. When he delivered her son alive to her, the Bible says that it was in that moment that seeing the raising of her only son from the dead is the thing that provided the evidence that she needed to believe the word of the Lord. We look briefly at how that connects with the resurrection of God's only son and how that provides the evidence that we need to believe. Well, we come now to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1. And we don't have slides today and we don't have live stream today because there all the volunteers were gone, uh, and so uh, just uh, y'all still remember how to read a Bible? I hope so. We get spoiled on things like this sometimes. So, First Kings chapter 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, James 5.17, way over towards the end of the New Testament, gives us a little more detail here. This verse, 18.1, says three years of drought. James 5.17 says uh, Elijah was a man of like passions or similar nature as us. In other words, he was just a guy. And yet he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for the span of three years and six months. So James 5.17 gives us a more exact uh, time frame of that drought. And it's interesting, as I said, the previous chapter... God sent Elijah to hide from Ahab for three and a half years. And now here, God sends him to confront Ahab. And I can't spend time on that, but I, just, I don't want us to miss that. That there are different seasons in life when God will have us do one thing, and then in another season, it'll be something completely different. And so we must be open to what God is calling us to do in, in this particular moment in our lives. And I can just tell you, this was not the best time to go and confront King Ahab. This guy was a madman to begin with. But now, after three and a half years of drought, everybody was on edge. Everybody was frantic. And uh, this was not a good time to go and confront King Ahab. The Bible tells us that his wife Jezebel had been on this rampage, rounding up every prophet of the Lord and putting them to death. Now think about that for just a moment. Ahab's wife Jezebel is on a mission to kill every prophet of the Lord. And the Lord says to Elijah, that's exactly where I want you to go, to Ahab and Jezebel. Sometimes God says to us, hey, share my love with that co-worker. And we go, oh, I don't think I can do that. And you read this and you go, well, wow, God's never called me to something this crazy. Maybe I can share his love with that co-worker. Once again, Elijah obeyed. And verses 2 through 16, I'll leave for you to cover on your own. There's just no time. Uh, but we're told about a man named Obadiah, who during this time when 
the drought was going on, when the prophets were being killed, Obadiah took 100 prophets of the Lord and he hid them in caves. And you can go to this place today, by the way, Mount Carmel, that we're going to look at here, uh, and you'll see caves still all over the place. Once again, the, the little details of the Bible that come through for us over time. As one atheist said, who was a historian and an archaeologist, he, he studied the Gospel of Luke, which is, he, he called it the greatest historical, the greatest and most accurate historical document ever written, the Gospel of Luke. And by studying simply the um, geographical and uh, time frame and archaeological details found in the book of Luke and how accurate they are to real life, this atheist fell on his knees and gave his life to Christ. And so the Bible just speaks sometimes in little ways. That he hit them in caves. Okay, so what? Well, you go there and it's one, it's one spot where there's just caves everywhere. Um, and he, he hid them in caves. He fed them bread and water, we're told. And in addition to that, we're told in those verses there, 2 through 16, that the drought had been so severe that Obadiah was out now searching everywhere he could just to find a little bit of grass to keep their horses and their mules alive. Horses and mules were vital to them. So this was a very bad time. The nation had been devastated by not only three and a half years of physical drought, but their ongoing spiritual drought had led them away from God. So it's into that setting. It's into that setting that God sends Elijah, the very man who had brought on this drought, he sends Elijah right into the thick of the battle, right into the darkest place to go and face King Ahab. Now we pick up in verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore... Send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, now listen to this, if you underline your Bible, underline this next phrase. Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter or waver between two opinions. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered Him, not a word. And their silence was evidence of their guilt. Do you ever... Uh, catch uh, one of your little children doing something that they weren't supposed to do and you approach them about it. Did, did you do this, sweetie? And what do they so often do? They just look at the floor. And they can't say a word because they're guilty. And they know it. There's nothing they can say in their defense. The people are silent when Elijah says this and it is a, it's glaringly obvious their guilt. And Elijah is setting before the people a choice, just as we saw months ago Joshua did to God's people. And he, he is saying what Joshua said, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the world? 
You can't do both. And what's playing out here, we, we mustn't miss the, um, the weight, the significance of what's happening here. Because what's playing out really is the fundamental conflict in the history of humanity. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, man has been fighting and having to make this choice. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve the devil and the world? And folks, I want to tell you, that choice is still very much active for us today. Well, I don't just mean at the moment of salvation, when we choose to believe in Christ and receive eternal life. No, I mean moment by moment, day by day. We make this choice 99% of the time we do it subconsciously. What thought am I going to dwell on in this moment? That's this choice. You serving the Lord or are you serving the world? What words am I going to speak in this moment? Oh man, all of us can look back on our lives and think, oh, I wish I had just kept my big mouth shut. The decisions, the plans, the goals, the pursuits, the ambitions, the desires, the relationships, they're all choices. They're all choices of whether we're going to follow the Lord or whether we're going to follow the world. And folks, I think uh, this is what the church today needs as much as anything else. is for people who call themselves followers of Christ to, you know, follow Christ. To follow Christ. I've, I can't break this habit yet, but I'm trying to stop calling myself a Christian. Because that's a very static, passive term. Oh, everybody's a Christian. I talk to people all the time, in stores, wherever, at gas stations. You know the Lord? Oh, yes, I know the Lord. And they, you know, well, I'm sure many of them do, but I guarantee you many of them don't. It's just, it's just a label they've put on for convenience. So I try not to call myself a Christian. I want to be able to honestly say of myself, honestly say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm moving. I'm stepping out. I'm walking in his steps. May it be so of me. The church today doesn't look that much different from the world. You read Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and following, those people stood out. Now, I don't mean we need to make ourselves weirder than we already are as Christians. Let's not add to the problem. But do we stand out from the world around us? As the church, do we stand out? I think the modern church has tried so hard to become relevant that it has actually become indistinguishable from the very people they're supposed to be reaching. And I want to tell you, because I've heard from lost people, I've heard this. You know the church thinks that they're, they're really knocking it out of the park when they become cool and relevant to the unsaved world so the world can identify with them. You want to know what the world thinks? The world loses all respect for the church when they do that. They're not looking for the same thing they've already got. Oh, they'll criticize the church and religion and Christ and all of that. But when the chips are down, they want the real thing. Oh, I got off track a bit there. Jesus chastised the church in Revelation. The church at Laodicea, he said in Revelation 3, Verses 15 and 16, I know your works. Boy, there's something. 
I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's the word to vomit. To spew you out of my mouth. In other words, he says, it makes me sick to see my church lukewarm. And you know what? I missed this for years of my life. I missed what he was saying here. And it's a remarkable jolt, I think, to our state of reality. I always thought that God was just saying, I wish you were hot. I missed it. He says, I actually, if you're not going to be hot, I actually wish you were cold. Wow. In other words, get in or get out. You understand? Get in or get out. We got many of you who served in the military. My friend John here has some amazing stories about the military. And he could tell you, when you join the military, you're not halfway in and halfway out. You're in the military. You can't say, well, I'd like to go home this weekend and have some of my mommy's chocolate chip cookies. Can't do that. You signed up. You gave your life to them for X amount of years. And we somehow see following Christ as, oh, I walked down an aisle in church one time and I signed a card and you know, I said the thing. and um, That's what it is to so many people. Listen, and I, I, I try to be careful how I say this. I don't mean it to come out wrong, but there have been times when I have... I don't know if I should say this publicly. I don't want you to take this the wrong way. There have been times when I have actually put people off from receiving Christ because I didn't feel they were genuine. Now, I didn't abandon them. I followed up with them and tried to bring them to that point where they understood what they were doing. But I want people to know, when you become a follower of Christ, you're signing up for warfare. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a, a wonderful thing where all your problems magically disappear. And No, it's not that at all. Those of you who have been walking with Christ 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you've got the scars to prove it. You know. You know. Throughout the Bible, we're told, make a choice. Make a choice. Stop living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Either follow God wholeheartedly or, as God says in Revelation 3, follow the world wholeheartedly. I just want to know where you are. Live for me or man, go live for Satan and live it up. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And we've talked about this before. It's, it's the picture of, you know, he said, you shall have no other gods before me or, or besides me. It's the picture of having a heart that is undiluted with other things. It's unmixed with other things. If you were thirsty out there in this heat this week, and I came and offered you a glass of cold, refreshing water, and I said, oh, oh by the way, before you drink that, I put 5% poison in it. It's okay, it's just 5%. Probably wouldn't drink it. Because who wants 5% poison in their body? Yet we live so often with our heart mixed, diluted with other things. When God says, I will not settle for that. It's all. I want all. I want all. And can I just tell you, because I don't want anyone to get discouraged, this is not, this is not a moment 
or a place or a marker that you reach in your Christian life and then all of a sudden for the rest of your life you're living for him with all your heart. This is a daily battle over the turf of your heart. This is why Paul said, this is why Jesus said, we're told again and again, you must die daily to yourself. Every day when you get up, Lord, put me to death. Put me to death and live through me. It's a constant battle. I talked to a man years ago who was in his 70s at the time. He had been a, an alcoholic, by his own words, uh, like a, a waking up in the gutter alcoholic is what he said for 30 years of his life. And he found Christ and he was transformed. And he said, man, I'm putting, I'm putting that stuff out of my life. I don't want anything to do with alcohol because I know what it does to me. And I said to him, I was sitting at a restaurant here in town with him years ago, and he was in his, somewhere in his 70s at this time, and I said to him, do, do you ever um, still crave alcohol? He said, every day. Every day. Wow. I nearly fell out of my chair because this guy had become an icon for Christ, mentoring other men. In fact, I'll just tell you, he's the man who mentored Moose Keller. Every day. He said, I fight it every day. So don't think that when you, know, you, can, you can pray a prayer, you can reach a point where, wow, my heart is fully his now. I can coast to heaven. You're going to fight it every day. Imagine if your spouse said to you, sweetie, I love you a lot, but there's someone else across town that I love also. I mean, I love you more, but I, I love that other person as well. You know, just saying those words just makes me ill. It just makes me hurt to think of that. Would you feel loved if your spouse said that to you? Happy Valentine's Day, honey, I love you. Ooh, but i got to run because i got to go show my love to the other person. No, you would be devastated. Why? Because it's a mixed love. Imagine how God feels. He looks down and he sees his creation that he adores. Created to worship him, to bring him glory. Imagine when he looks and sees us running about with mixed hearts, loving and pursuing everything besides him. Say, Lord, I'll worship you on Sunday, but man, Monday through Saturday, I'm going to live how I please. We would never verbalize those words. We would never think of saying that. But it's true very often of all of us, and myself included. God says to you this morning, stop wavering. Stop wavering between two opinions. Choose who you're going to live for and live for them wholeheartedly. Well, let's move on quickly. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord. Now, that wasn't true. We'll see that next week, I believe. But Elijah felt that way. Three and a half years he'd been putting up with all this mess and, and living under the um, consequences of the very drought that God had caused him to bring about. And he's tired. He's exhausted. And he's, you know, he's getting uh, pursued by Ahab and Jezebel and seeing the prophets killed. He's just like, man, I'm, I'm, God, I, I'm clearly the only one left who's serving you. That's, it wasn't true. But he felt that way. He said, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Verse 23. 
So he said this now to Ahab and to the people. He said, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you, you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, or what you've said is good. We agree with you. Let's do this. Verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. And they took the bowl which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal, watch this, from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. You can see them. I remember in Africa seeing this dancing about the altar, kicking up dust everywhere. At noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry louder, for he is a god. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. I'm like, Elijah, dude, settle down. No, don't push your luck here, you know. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom. I've seen people do this, thinking they're pleasing their gods by having a whip and beating their own back until they bleed. They cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied, hmm, careful. Not everybody who prophesies is speaking the word of the Lord. And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But listen, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. What a statement. What a statement. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Can I just say to you, if you are chasing after the idols of this world. It'll be fun for a while. But the day will come when you're in trouble and you need help and you'll call out to those things for help. And I'm telling you, there will be no voice. No one will answer. No one will pay attention. Remember the prodigal son? Oh, he was surrounded by friends when he had money and the money was flowing. But when the money ran out, so did his friends, and he ended up alone in a pig pen. It's a picture of what will happen to every one of us if we abandon the Father and pursue the world. Fun for a while. I've, I've talked to people over the years. I pleaded with a man one time who was committing adultery on his wife and little children at home. I begged him on the phone. I begged him, stop, please, come make this right. No, no, too much fun. Until it wasn't. Every idol of this world will leave you lonely, and broken, and discarded. Eventually. I'm going to tell you, you better make Jesus your everything because He's the only one you can truly count on to the very end. Well, verse 30, And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. 
So all the people came near to him, and he, and here's another verse to underline, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was torn down. I believe that is the most overlooked verse in this entire chapter. Everybody focuses on the fire falling from heaven. That's apparently the big thing in this chapter we need to take. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think this right here is the key to it all. Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. What was the altar? What, what was it for? Well, we remember back in our studies through the tabernacle, how the altar was the place where sins were confessed. The altar was the place where sacrifice for sin was offered. The altar was the place of cleansing. It was the first thing you encountered when you walked through the curtain into the outer court of the tabernacle. You literally could not pass. You could not go any further into the tabernacle towards the presence of God without first stopping and dealing with your sin at the altar. So we looked at all that. The sacrifice offered there was the only way any person could ever approach God's presence. And of course, that sacrifice was a picture of Jesus Christ. The one who offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. And it's only through Christ that any of us can approach God. But here, folks, we get this chilling picture that the altar of God had been torn down. The people of God were no longer coming to the altar of God to find forgiveness and cleansing. They had stopped sacrificing to Jehovah, and instead they were worshiping in their own way. But we must remember, folks, God will not accept us on our own merit. You all with me this morning? It's quiet. Okay. God will not accept us on our own merit. He will not accept us on our own terms. He'll only accept us based on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the blood that He shed to atone for our sin. That's why, listen, when any church, any church, stops preaching the cross and the shed blood of Christ, that church and those people are doomed. They're doomed. I don't care how many programs they have going on. I don't care how many carnivals they run on the weekends or whatever they do, they are doomed if they stop preaching about the altar, if they stop preaching about the cross and the shed blood of Christ. That's exactly what happened here in Elijah's day. The, the, The nation was in such a mess for one reason and one reason only, because they had stopped worshiping God, and they had abandoned the altar, which was the only way any person could stand righteous before a holy God. Elijah recognized the seriousness of this. And that's why the first thing he did before calling on the Lord was to stop and repair and rebuild the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. See, Elijah could have just prayed, Lord, let your fire fall on this altar and prove to everyone that you are God. Elijah knew that before the fire of God's power would ever fall, the people would have to first come to the altar again. There would have to be confession. There would have to be repentance. There would have to be cleansing. I think what has long been forgotten in so many of our churches is the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Preaching of the blood of the Lamb has been replaced 
so many churches with all kinds of entertainment and easy-to-swallow sermons, and we wonder why our nation is in such a mess. You read about the revivals of old. If you've never read any of those old books, those old stories, I encourage you to do so. You read about the, the revivals of old where the power of God fell and sometimes entire towns were brought to repentance. They didn't have fancy programs. They didn't have new methods. They didn't have slick entertainment. They didn't care about being seeker-friendly. What they did was to preach that man is a hell-bound sinner and that the blood of Christ is his only remedy and they called on people to repent. Folks, you and I can't bring conviction and salvation to others through clever means. It's the gospel. That's where the power is. The blood of Christ has been, still is, and always will be the only cure for mankind. And I wonder, as, I'm, as I try to wrap this up quickly, I wonder, have you ever come to the altar? You go, yeah, I've been going to church my whole life. It's not what I asked. Good for you, but it's not what I asked. Have you ever come to the altar? Have you ever received the, the forgiveness of sins that can only come through sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? I talked to a woman years ago, I think I told you this, <clears throat> she was visiting, she was just passing through town, and she was, she was here, appeared to be in her maybe mid-80s. <clears throat> and I don't always do this with first-time visitors, but I just felt compelled. And I was talking to her in the foyer after the service, and I just felt compelled to say to her, ma'am, can I ask you, has anybody ever shared with you your need to be saved? And she said, no. And me being the genius I am, I, I concluded that I said, oh, so you, you didn't grow up in church? You've never been to church? She said, oh, no, I've gone to church my whole life. And I said, I beg your pardon, what? And no one has ever told you about your need for salvation? No, sir. I said, what did they talk about? She said, oh, it was, there were lovely sermons about being kind and feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and planting trees for peace. And yeah, It happens all the time. Church pews are filled with people this very morning who will never hear the gospel. Never. Well, verse 31, quickly, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed, or two measures. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, folks, water was precious at this point. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Elijah wasn't trying to create drama or anything like that. He wasn't trying to put on a show. He wanted people to know that... <clears throat> It would be impossible, humanly speaking, for this thing to ever catch fire. And if it did catch fire, it had to be the power of God. Verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Again, <clears throat> Like I said last week, Elijah wasn't just going around inventing stuff to do. 
Everything he did, God had told him to do. Including this, verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Man, I love this little glimpse we get here into Elijah's heart. Here on the top of this mountain, there's this showdown about to take place between Elijah, the prophet of God, and all these false prophets. But there's something so much more significant taking place. It's a battle for the hearts and souls of people. That's what's happening here. Their hearts have been turned away from the one true God. They're worshiping false God. And Elijah knows that the only way they're ever going to repent and turn back to the Lord is if the Lord himself turns their hearts back to him as they surrender to him. And I love that his greatest desire is not that a big show would take place, but his greatest desire is that these people would see and know once again that the Lord is God and that they would turn their hearts to him. He's not saying, Lord, please come through for me on this. If you don't, I'm going to look like a fool. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, I long so much for these people, for everyone to see you as God and to come to know you as God and to glorify you. Reminds me of David's heart. <clears throat> when he went to face Goliath, when he fought his battles, we read his words. The thing that he wanted more than anything was that all the nations would know that the Lord is God. And I wonder, <clears throat> is that what you and I are living for? Is our greatest desire in all that we say and do that God would be glorified? Well, we read in the following verses that, uh, I'll just read it, verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yep, I bet they did. See, it's, I think it's far too easy to get lost in all the action taking place in this chapter and completely miss the point. God's people, the ones he dearly loved, had put aside the altar where sins were confessed and covered by the blood, and they were instead worshiping and serving other things. And this is what it took for them to wake up. And you read in the, the next verse, and all this was done, something that seems horrible to us, but God told Elijah to take all these 450 prophets down and slaughter them all. It's a picture of leaving no sin undealt with. So I wonder where are we on this whole matter today? What's it going to take for us to have our hearts turned again to the Lord, to be fully committed to living for Him? Can we truly say that we're not wavering between two opinions, that we are fully committed to the Lord? Can we, can we truly say that it's our desire for others to see the glory and the power of God through our lives and turn to Him? My prayer for, for me my prayer for our church is that it could be truly said of us they never wavered between two opinions. They never abandoned the altar of the Lord. Their hearts were fully devoted to Him. May God be pleased to let His kingdom come through us as we live our lives and that His kingdom would rule over the kingdoms of this world that others will see His glory and power and that they will turn their hearts to Him. Let's pray. 
You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my